Where are you taking us? To the end of the story. He's not showing you something that you know, but he's taking you from the world you know into something very magical. I do have him down as somebody who was quite a humble, honest person, a person who didn't chase money or fame or any of those vices. I can't imagine a world where he wasn't that. He really represents to me what Western civilization should be. He's kind of Western civilization at its best. This is it, episode eight, the final installment of Leonardo, the official podcast. If you've come to us straight from watching the finale to the drama, do not worry. Of course, we will be discussing that ending. Consider this your first spoiler warning. Thank you. I'm your host, Angelica Bell, and this time we'll also get into what can be a point of contention for any historical drama what is true, and what has been made up for the story. Most prominently here is the murder mystery that surrounds Caterina de Cremona, a real woman from history whose story has been fictionalised by writers Steve Thompson and Frank Spotnitz. But would audiences believe that da Vinci could be a murderer? Aidan Turner, who plays Leonardo, shares his thoughts on that. It allows us to really envelop ourselves in his life more. It doesn't matter whether it's fictitious or not. I mean, the Geraldi thing clearly is, but it gives us pace to our show and it shows him in a different light that otherwise we might not be able to... I don't know how we'd otherwise show it. We couldn't talk about episode eight of the drama without talking to Caterina, actor Matilda De Angelis, and the passion and obsession that Leonardo put into his life and art. There's a part also that maybe we can relate to nowadays, which is the relationship between art and politics, art and ego, art and ideals and morals and whatever is acceptable for you. How far you can go for the love of art and forget about everything else. We'll also be discussing Leonardo's legacy with our historical experts and the monetary value put on da Vinci's work. That thing of art prices hugely taking off for these old masters is very much a modern thing. I mean, Leonardo's work and Leonardo's paintings in particular are prized because there are so few of them. One of those that remains a mystery to this day is Leda and the Swan, which is also the art focus for episode eight of Leonardo. Not only will we get into the enigma of that with our experts, but also its subject matter, which was controversial for the time, as da Vinci's painting portrayed Leda nude. And not just nude, but naked. I mean, very prominently naked. It was intended to be, we assume, a titillating painting soft pawn for the Renaissance. And she's embracing the swan who has this beguiling feather running down her thigh and she's standing there with her shoulders tilted and her hips tilted, her knees tightly together with, again, her eyes cast down and this extraordinary hair. So let us begin with the end. Katrina. Mm. Katrina, wake up. Why? I want you to model for me. What? I want you to model for me. Wear this. The irony embedded in Leonardo is that while his name is in the title, as da Vinci is the one that history remembers, in this drama, he is saved by a woman, Catalina, 
the mysterious woman from Cremona. We'll hear from Matilda De Angelis in a few moments, but let's start with an ending that never was. If you've been watching along with the drama, we've witnessed Leonardo age subtly over time. From episode 8 onwards, when Da Vinci is painting The Last Supper, Aidan Turner tells how flecks of grey were progressively added to his hair for each episode. But the original plan was for us to be left with the image of Leonardo as a much older man at the end of episode 8. Aidan says, for now at least, that remains unseen. There was one scene, and it was supposed to be in the end of the uh, end of the series. It may well still go in, I'm not too sure, but to the best of my knowledge, I think it's been cut. But it was Leonardo being introduced to the King of France, because that's where he spent the last years of his life. But he's old, I, you know, I had a long grey beard and the long grey hair. And it wasn't a scene I was incredibly excited to shoot, i got to be honest. But we, we, we were on a wide, we are on a crane. It looked quite beautiful. I pull up in a carriage, quite opulent and rich and beautiful. And I think it was a nice way with the title, uh, with the captions, how we would have ended the show. But I don't believe it's in it anymore. Director Dan Percival has a bit more detail on the aged Leonardo scene that got cut. It was like a coda scene right at the end of the last episode. Leonardo goes to live with the King of France and we created this fantastic carriage for him, this great wardrobe, and he had the long beard and the long white hair that we, we associated with. Poor old Aidan was six hours in makeup, six hours of makeup to shoot this, this one scene of him stepping out of a carriage and greeting his, the French king and being walked off to Amboise Palace. And we didn't even see it? So six hours for nothing? Yeah. Plus the time to shoot the scene. <laughs> it's most of the day. <laughs> oh my goodness. But yeah, I don't know whether you'll see it or not. Maybe in the French version of the show, they'll, they'll put it in. But it's, it, it was a lot of CGI and a lot of others. It was, it was a deal. You might have to just send me a picture just so I can see it to believe it. I will. I'll send you a picture of Aidan with the beard. He looks fabulous. And Dan Percival was good to his word. And I can confirm Aidan, as the much older Leonardo da Vinci, was completely convincing. I will keep that picture forever. The perils of the cutting room floor. While the on-screen relationship between Aidan Turner and Matilda De Angelis, Leonardo and Catalina, may have concluded for now, the pair remain good friends and both join us to reflect back across the entire series and the themes that have stayed with them. We'll hear what they think about the intensity of Da Vinci's approach to his work and whether he had any sense of what today we'd call a work-life balance. But we begin on a lighter note, or should I say, a hairier one. Speaking about beard, I, I, they were the days when I wasn't so happy, right? Could you sense that? You hated the beard. Oh, damn, I hated that beard. I mean, I grew my own. This is what COVID got us, right? So I, I, I arrived, didn't have a beard. We weren't shooting with the beard. Then we stuck on a beard for a couple of days. Not that many. I think like four or five pre-COVID. And then, you know, we take three months off and I grow this incredible beard. Beautiful, I remember. <laughs> Wasn't it brilliant? It's beautiful. It's the only thing myself and Leonardo have in common. We both, we grow good beards. That's, that's where my comparison <laughs> ends. <laughs> we, have, we have good facial hair. So, <clears throat> so I come with this great beard and then we shoot loads. We shoot weeks and weeks with the beard. And then because of timing with, with scheduling, the beard has to come off and then we have to stick back on for, for a little bit. So I think those stick back on days were my probably my least happiest days. I hope you didn't get 
the brunt of that though i had some crew members make up costume came up and said well, what is up with you what's happening uh, that, yeah i didn't like it have you ever stuck on a beard before matilda <laughs> you you won't like it no no i don't <laughs> it's not fun it's not I imagine fun. i had i had glue all over my face you know for the oh that's right to ages yeah, right Federico would like put this glue on my face and and literally you know smash my face and oh my God. do some wrinkles and stuff and it was so painful as well it looked good though it looked, it looked really good yeah. it works doesn't it yeah it worked it looked tired and you look perfect <laughs> so what themes resounded with you matilda like what themes affected you and, and what do you think the audience will catch on to when they watch the show and be affected by well my first thought is uh the thriller part is pretty amazing because it's of course a love story in many layers but the thriller part is pretty incredible it's always at the beginning and in the end of the series which is the grip for the audience when the when the episode ends with another punchline from leonardo what is this curse that's hung over you your entire life it's ridiculous then what does it matter it doesn't matter just tell me what she said she said i will destroy what i love you're like oh my god i want to know more that's what she said so for me the mystery which is a pretty big part of leonardo history as well he was a mysterious mm. man he was yeah he was strange he was it rem- i remember there was a scene um there was a scene with a younger kid yeah alfie there was a scene when alfie uh he asks leonardo what you drawing this here is the human heart How do you know what it looks like? Professor in Pavia gives me bodies to dissect. You cut up dead people. And I remember when we were doing the scene, I was thinking, you know, because I knew, you know, the dialogue and you know the scene, you've read it many times and I knew it's a part of, you know, being an, an anatomist was a part of Leonardo's life. Uh, he, he, he got cadavers and cut them up and studied them and sketched them. Some of these sketches still exist today in these medical journals. They're really important diagrams. And But you kind of think, when you really you think about it, you're like, oh my God, like he's... You know, he would take these bodies and cut them up and I think struggled with them too. And like he knew there was it was disgusting and he talked about the odor, the smell, and he talked about waking up and seeing these and some of his notes he talked about seeing these bodies in the morning and forgetting they were there and dissected bodies. I mean the lengths he went to to show the this detail. I mean yeah. just the way he observed, observation being so important to him. He talks about you know how other artists they must when they go for a walk make sure you don't relax it's not about relaxing it's about observing you know it just he he must have never switched off it must have been constantly the way we look at things we assume they're there we assume that that you know the grass is green that's the way the wind blows it yeah. it it does it, it it doesn't stop there for leonardo you know it's it's how does it blow what does it look like how does the light shine off that blade of grass and how does it does it reflect onto another it just it's constant all the time yeah but no that's an important theme the thriller aspect i'd forgotten that it's such a huge part of our show <laughs> it's for me is i mean people love thriller but it's a huge part of the of the story and there's a part also that maybe we can relate to nowadays which is the relationship between 
art and politics, art and ego, art and um, ideals and morals and whatever is acceptable for you. How far you can go for the love of art and mm. forget about everything else. Because in a way, Leonardo is, in that sense, is extreme. You know, the fight we have in episode four at the end of the episode is mainly about that. The reason why we split is about your obsession about your work and your art. I can't go. What? I can't leave. I have the commission. Leonardo, he is a killer. We don't. Right? We know. No, no, we don't know no, that he's responsible. Could... How can you be a part of this anyway? If I walk out now, I'll be no one. Who am I if I'm not an artist? Katrina. Ambition has destroyed the man that I loved. He seems to me on so many levels like such a such a humble person. There's so much humility there. I mean, even in the in the fact that he didn't have a great amount of works, a lot of things were left unfinished. Like he didn't he didn't necessarily want to as some people might imagine, like Michelangelo made a big, he's a young guy on the scene, he's painting and sculpting these classics, you know, these idealized notions of what it is to be, just his idea of what beauty is. And I could see why Leonardo would think, you know, who's this for? Like this, we don't need to see this. Like what, what, what does this represent? What, why do this and not, we don't need to. Telling the truth, showing the scars, that's what real beauty is. It's the hammer blows that make us works of art. So his obsession with, truth and nature versus like well where did his ego lie because also i think he was very aware of his talent you know he, he was aware that he was gathering many patrons he became famous at a younger age you know he was acquired by by borgia and by sforza and these people i mean he was aware of his notoriety and i think he was aware of his own talent too obviously but it's funny because I, I do have him down as somebody, and that's in, in my heart. I mean, we'll never know, I suppose, but somebody who was quite a humble, honest person, a person who didn't chase money or fame or any of those vices. I think I can't imagine a world where he wasn't that. No. Another theme, I suppose, is for, that I felt was love. She was love. Leonardo's words to describe Caterina de Cremona. He had such a difficult childhood. I mean, to be even called, you know, illegitimate or to have that sensibility around you as a, as a child growing up, um, I can't imagine what that would feel like, to feel unwanted, to feel unloved. He must have been always chasing that. It must be something that one always chases if you're not given it. So, I mean, this meeting of hearts and meeting of minds with um, Caterina is something that makes total sense to our show. I mean, even though it's fictitious and it's something I, I initially on reading the stories, our script, you know, and, you know, you mentioned Giraldi and the thriller aspect to our show. And I thought, well, this is fictitious. Do we need to make up things? I mean, this is the life of Leonardo da Vinci. We don't need to make anything fictitious. And, you know, once I settled on the idea and certainly, you know, when I've seen it and we were shooting it, it just, it allows us to really envelop ourselves in 
his life more. It doesn't matter whether it's fictitious or not. I mean, the Geraldi thing clearly is, but it gives us pace to our show and it shows him in a different light that otherwise we might not be able to... I don't know how we'd otherwise show it. Seeing him under that kind of pressure on pain of death to save somebody's life that he loves, it's incredible. Um, And I imagine he was that kind of person. They said you're to hang today. To no grave. It's common for actors to hold on to something from a production. But before Aidan and Matilda tell us what they kept from the set of Leonardo, you might recall they talked in depth about their costumes back in episode three of our podcast. But there was a lingering and relatable thought from Aidan about post-pandemic lockdown, whether he'd still be able to wear Leonardo's costumes. <laughs> pants, your, your tight pants tight pants I would not fit into those pants now definitely not a, a half a year of lockdown those pants wouldn't get, wouldn't get around my ankles um, but what did I keep I got uh, uh, similarly um, our art uh, our artist on, on the job Alessandro had sketched um, had done some really great sketches of uh, the Mona Lisa and her hands and he had these sort of absurd strange little sketches of of and, and he painted some of her hands just as hand sketches to show in the scene um as part of uh well leonardo's workshop um and i quite liked them and i was staring at them one day and dan had said to me dan says you should take them when you when you leave um and i did <laughs> i did i asked i asked for them i didn't i didn't steal them how about you what do you what did you steal what did I steal? <laughs> as well i have my i have my sketches my drawings some of them are very, very alike me, and they're beautiful, incredible. I have one here. I don't know if you can see it. This is me, 100%. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, our listeners won't be able to see that, but it, it does look very like you. So, Alessandro started from a very, very accurate way. It is very accurate. And then it becomes... Leonardo's way of drawing me, which eventually lead on this one. So I, that's right. They would do the stages, right? Yeah, we have the stages from right. me, me, me to her, 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 Lida and her, her, her. Yeah. <laughs> I think as actors go, we did okay. We took a couple of amazing sketches that we're very grateful for. It doesn't usually end like this. My last job, I literally took the kitchen table. So what? I think we've we've. Yeah, yeah, it's downstairs oh. <laughs> in my house right now. Oh my it's god! Great. So I, yeah, I've actually, as it goes, I've, I've, uh, I've underpitched. I've, I've gone lightly. A couple of sketches. That's you pretty know, good. You know what I wanted? I wanted my red dress. The one I. Oh, I, I took I, that too. I took your red dress. No. <laughs> I should have worn it during the Zoom just to give you a laugh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it, it turns out I can put it on myself. I don't even need. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Okay, moving on, surely. (laughs) Aidan and Matilda will be back later on in this episode as we forensically look at the ending to episode eight of the drama and the mystery of the life and death of Katerina. There's another key player in that murder mystery, Stefano Giraldi, played by Freddie Highmore. If it wasn't for Giraldi's insistence on learning the truth of what happened to Catalina, then the ending would have been very different for Leonardo. Freddie Highmore also exec-produced the drama, so was very invested in all of these characters. 
You hide inside that great brain of yours, Leonardo, like it's some impenetrable shell protecting you from us mortals. But you're only human, filled with the same fears and weaknesses as the rest of us. That cat and mouse thing between Aidan and you mm -hmm. in your scenes is fascinating because you start off thinking, hmm, I'm going to get you. <laughs> but then by the end, you're, you're almost mesmerised by him and his thought processes. Yes. Um, yeah, the mind games were great fun. The sort of cat and mouse, you know, scenes, as you say, with, with Aidan. I saw Tommaso Massini today. He told me he believes you're capable of murder. Tommaso has reason to hate me. He didn't seem to hate you. He seemed to pity you. Pity? Why? He told me the story about you as a child. About the curse. Superstitious nonsense. And I think that, you know, he the, the character I play is a is an is fictitious, kind of invented for this story, but He's genuinely curious, I think, more than anyone else about who Leonardo is as a person. He doesn't arrive with this preconceived notion of, I'm going to judge you and I know who you are and I'm going to, you know, come here and see the, the investigation itself as a means to an end. I think he's genuinely trying to understand the truth and in doing so acts a little bit as the audience's way into understanding Leonardo too. I heard the guards talking. They said your promotion depends on getting my confession. I'm not going to put you on the rack, if that's what you're worried about. Why not? Torture gets people to tell us what we want to hear. I want the truth. Just in terms of, like, Stefano and how... Yeah, and how those investigations go down, I, I, I think none of us... We didn't want him to be this kind of stereotypical, bombastic detective guy who's like angry trying to get a confession out of Leonardo by banging the table and saying like you must tell me like tell me now in, in every single scene and I think they are more interesting those scenes because there's because there's a nuance to them and there's this you know closeness that the two and a, and a bond really that the two of them come to to have by the end of the show again not to not to give too much away you changed the way I see the world Leonardo and myself So what is it about Da Vinci that fascinates Stefano so much? I think it's probably the thing that fascinates all of us about him. I think it's trying to understand who this enigmatic personality is. And when we think of Leonardo da Vinci, like all of us know, we all know his paintings. The first thing that probably pops into mind isn't an image of Leonardo himself. It's the Mona Lisa or the Last Supper. And I think what Stefano is so interested to... Um, to find out is like, who is the man behind these paintings and what, you know, is going on in his mind when he created these things. And we, you know, go through the show and just strip back this enigmatic personality to try and find out, you know, the truth behind the person, which is a truth that I think many people aren't necessarily aware of. You would have killed for your art. But I did not kill Katerina. Now I would love to talk about episode eight the big one <laughs> we've got an ending obviously I'm not going to go into too much detail you can't possibly promise that were there other alternative endings considered um I think this was what Frank and Steve had in mind it's the sort of show where you kind of need to know the end before you 
before you start writing. And it's what I love about the episode is that all of those pieces satisfyingly fit together. But hopefully it's the ending that you want, but not in the way that you expect it, mm-hmm. um, which which I think is what what everyone wants really when watching a show. You want to be surprised, but you also want to feel satisfied. <laughs> yes, you want to, no, definitely. I was I was satisfied, Freddie. Okay, good. <laughs> I'm pleased. It was fun to get to get out and about as well as Stefano, like he, you know, to get out of the cell and start running around in the world. Sarai, I know you lied to me and I know why. I don't know what you're talking about. Leonardo can bring people back from the dead. It's not too late to save him and the boy, but I need your help. Katharina wrote a letter. We need to find it. Gods! What are you most proud of about the series? An easy answer in some ways is just the way in which we were able to complete filming and the way that the crew in Italy were so, and the, and the producers in Italy were just so remarkable at being able to finish this show and to, to get it made in such challenging, crazy times. Um, and so I'm proud that we were able to start up again and do so successfully and, and in a way that people were safe. Do you think we're safe in this place, Leonardo? As EP, or should I, exec producer? EP's a bit over-familiar, isn't it? No, no, Annie's good, don't don't worry. Okay, I feel like we're friends now. (laughs) If you were going to move forward with another series, do you want to? Yes, yes, I would would absolutely love to, yes. Oh, exciting. I didn't know, I was not expecting the answer. I thought maybe you'd say, oh, you know, you've done it. But what other themes would you like to explore? Um representations of of gender not just masculinity but but more widely and giving you know telling stories from people that and and experience there have been experiences that have been traditionally kind of underrepresented I feel like that would be the sort of thing I'd love to do thematically I would love to to tell more stories in Europe too and and I think it's exciting as you know Europeans perhaps even more so given the given recent events to come together and to create content and to tell stories that we are excited about and that we're in control with instead of just leaving those bigger type projects to be done by people in North America. So is it a case of watch this space? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I should have said that. That would have been a much more succinct, enticing way to summarise it. Yeah, watch this space. (laughs) (laughs) Watch this space, everybody. Watch Leonardo, (laughs) watch this space. Like, that's it. That's all I've got to say. (laughs) The intrigue continues. As series one concludes, we've heard from our three main characters, Leonardo, Catalina and Stefano, Aidan, Matilda and Freddy. So let's now turn to our trio of experts who've been guiding us through the truth about Leonardo da Vinci's art and life. We already know that Leonardo wasn't brilliant at finishing a project, but the paintings he did complete have been famous worldwide. We'll get into the detail that surrounds one of his finished works that has now disappeared, Leda and the Swan. That piece features strongly in the drama as Catalina is portrayed as the inspiration for Leda. But I asked historian and author Catherine Fletcher how plausible it might be that Leonardo consciously stopped working on something or destroyed work he wasn't happy with, which we also see play out on screen. What's the problem, Maestro? 
Every imperfection seems huge. My mistakes amplified eight times over. I mean, it's interesting because he does keep lots and lots of the notebooks and they do seem to be preserved and they don't really go anywhere. But you can very much sort of imagine that somebody who is so much a perfectionist in terms of wanting to get all the details right, struggling to finish things, might well decide just to get rid of something that wasn't working. Why are you getting so angry? Calm down. No, no, I won't calm down. If I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it right. So I think that's a perfectly plausible piece of invention in lines with and what we know about Leonardo, that, yeah, he might well have just said, do you know what, I'm giving up on this, so, you know, there you go. I think this painting is a mess. While much of da Vinci's surviving art could be priceless, it wasn't always that way. There's documentation about how much some of his paintings were worth shortly after his death, and that of his assistant and pupil, Salai. It's quite tricky to work out cost comparisons, but we know um, from Salai's will, um, around about 1524, I think that is, that, for example, the Mona Lisa was worth 100 scudi. 100 scudi is about five times an unskilled worker's wage. So if we said today, maybe that's £20,000 a year, that would put the Mona Lisa at £100,000. Way, way less than it's actually worth now. I expected more. So similarly, the St. John the Baptist is worth um, 80 scudi. I mean, so there you've got perhaps four times an unskilled worker's wage. Maybe that's £80,000. I mean, it's very difficult to make precise comparisons, but these are expensive paintings, but they're not, you know, the incredible, super rich levels. So people, I mean, you know, the people who are really, really super rich at this time would very happily be able to pick up multiple Leonardos. Remarkable. I mean, that thing of art prices hugely taking off for these old masters is very much a modern thing. So it's perhaps a late 19th into the 20th century thing, this idea of kind of particular canon of old masters who are the very fashionable people to buy. I mean, Leonardo's work and Leonardo's paintings in particular are particularly prized because there are so few of them. There's only around about 20 surviving paintings. And that's very, very different from some other Renaissance artists who have you know, dozens and dozens and dozens. Um, and also have dozens by the workshop, which are very good. Um, Leonardo has so few that in this tiny, tiny number of occasions when they come onto the market or when, as with the Salvatore Mundi, somebody thinks they've found a new one, everybody goes absolutely crazy about it because they're just so rare. I couldn't pay you. Your talent will be payment enough. Salvatore Mundi is a painting of Jesus Christ that was only authenticated to be a da Vinci in 2008. It's since been the cause for controversy over its restoration and its immense auction price in 2011, when it smashed records by selling for $450 million. It was expected to go on display, yet as we record this in 2021, the Salvatore Mundi remains hidden from public view. It seems there is still much to discover about Leonardo's art. When we get past the turn of the 16th century, there's still a whole period of those 
Florentine paintings to come. There's a brief period in Venice. There's a period in Rome in the 15 teens. And then finally, there's a move to France in 1516 for the last few years of his life, by which time Leonardo is 64. So there's a whole latter part of his career when he's sort of in those last, I guess, 15 years or so of his life. This is not the end of your story. Yeah, he continues, for example, to work on the Mona Lisa, which still doesn't really get finished until very, very late on when he's at the court of France. She can't sat around with him. Um, Francesca del Giocondo and, and Lisa Gherardini never get their own portrait, somehow ends up with Leonardo's collection. And yeah, when he's, he's actually in France in those last years working at the French court, he spends a lot of time drawing these sort of dramatic sketches of floods, really thinking possibly about the end of the world, which is quite a common theme at that time, not particularly producing very much in terms of, you know, nice paintings or bits of architecture of the King of France. But I think, you know, as much as anything else, having Leonardo at his court is a piece of one-upmanship for the King of France, so he's not particularly going to complain. In a moment, more about what remains of Leonardo's Leda and the Swan and what it tells us. But now, just why has Leonardo da Vinci's fame increased so much over time? Martin Clayton from the Royal Collection Trust reminds us it has much to do with the Mona Lisa. Why can't you finish it? I wish I knew. Does Darren get it help? <laughs> Not really. We can date the fame, or the extreme fame, of the Mona Lisa very precisely, which is to 1911, when it was stolen. And this became a, a cause celebre. It was, it was missing for two years until it was found hidden under the bed of the Italian nationalist who'd stolen it. And because this was all over the newspapers, it had the same effect that the, the mystery of the Salvatore Mundi has today. You know, where, where is the Salvatore Mundi? Every, you know, little news stories have been dribbled out about it. And, and this, it keeps people interested. It keeps people talking about it. And the same happened with the Mona Lisa. And thereafter, this was the painting that if you went to the Louvre, you wanted to go to see the Mona Lisa. And, um, and the fame of it snowballed from, from then. In the 19th century, if you'd been asked, it was the Last Supper that was the most famous painting by by Leonardo, and you could have just walked past the Mona Lisa in the Louvre as people walk past the Virgin of the Rocks or the Madonna and Child with St Anne today, which are two equally great paintings by Leonardo that hardly anybody even looks at when, when they visit the Louvre. While the mystery remains around another of Leonardo's lost paintings, Leda and the Swan, clues to how women were viewed can be seen in the few drawings for it that have survived. Well, we have two famous ones which are quite highly finished and two sketchier heads of Leda. The first thing to say about the drawings of the head of Leda is that they're not portraits. They're not drawn from a live model. Even if they were studies from a live model, that would not make them a portrait. It would simply mean that Leonardo had a pose model in front of him. But there's this fascinating split in Leonardo's drawings and paintings between his depictions of real women such as Ginevra de Benci or Cecilia Gallerani or Isabella d'Este. Those are the real women that Leonardo depicted. But his drawings of imaginary women or of imagined women, uh, such as the Madonna or St Anne or, in this case, Leda, are much more conventional. They all look the same, essentially. The heads, these perfect oval heads, 
They're tilted demurely down to one side, their eyes are cast down, and they often have these very elaborate hairdos. And this is a convention that goes back to Leonardo's youth when he was working in Florence in, in Verrocchio's studio in, in his 20s. Verrocchio himself made many, well, some survive, we know from early testimony, or we believe from early testimony that he made many, of these drawn heads of women in exactly the same pose. How do you want me? Tilted to one side, eyes cast down, elaborate hair. In the case of Leda, we have the complication, if you like, that, of course, in the painting, she was to be naked. And not just nude, but naked. I mean, very prominently naked. It was intended to be, we assume, a titillating painting, soft porn for the Renaissance. And she's embracing the swan who has this beguiling feather running down her thigh, and she's standing there with her shoulders tilted and her hips tilted, her knees tightly together with, again, her eyes cast down, and this extraordinary hair, which, in the case of Leda, was clearly intended to be a foil to her nakedness. The fact that she has this extremely contrived coiffure emphasises the, the nudity of her body. No, you can cover your scar, if you wish. I want you to paint all of me. And in the drawings which Leonardo does again and again and again. He's investigating the most elaborate forms of, of hairstyles. In fact, in one of the drawings, not only does he show her in the pose of the painting, but he turns the head round and shows what this hair will look like from the back, which, of course, is completely unnecessary in a study for a painting. He just wants to see. He can't help but wanting to know when these sort of cornrows go over the back of the head, what, what happens at the back? How is it all sort of brought together into a little knot at the back of the hair? It's, it's obsessive but fascinating at the same time. As Martin explains, life drawing as we know it today is very different to how it was in the 15th and 16th centuries. Yes, it's pretty rare for women to be drawn from the life at that period. It was far more common if you needed to get an accurate drawing of the body of the Madonna, shall we say, to pose a male studio assistant in that pose and then just adjust the proportions and the details slightly to get it looking like a woman. There's a great deal we don't know about Leda and the Swan. It's completely undocumented during Leonardo's lifetime. We assume it was a commission because it was started around 1503, which was one of the very busiest periods of Leonardo's life. He begins the Mona Lisa probably that year. He's working on the Battle of Anghiari. Why he would start on another painting of Leda and the Swan, or even start thinking about the painting, is a bit of a mystery. Are you familiar with the myth, Leda and the Swan? From all it, um, Leda is the wife of the king of Sparta. Exactly, and then Zeus disguised himself as a swan in order to seduce her. She was tricked into sleeping with him. And then she gave birth to twins, and in turn gave birth to civilization. From darkness light. It seems that from about roughly 1508 until about the end of his life, he's working slowly on this painting, which would have been about five feet to six feet high. We think it was hanging in a royal bathroom, and because it was painted on panel, the humidity of the bathroom would have caused the panels to warp and split, and it was probably in a ruinous condition anyway, and maybe a little bit of prudery 
was the final straw and that caused the original painting to be to be thrown away. It was my most personal painting. And I believe my greatest. And she destroyed it. Well, we, we think it was thrown away. We have, we have no record of it being so, only that it disappears from the historic record. And while it's impossible to imagine that a Leonardo could pass without notice for 300 years, you never know. Maybe it's a painting that is lurking somewhere waiting to be discovered. I doubt it very much, but never say never. The mysteries continue. Now, if your interest in Leonardo has been piqued, many of his drawings, notebooks and paintings are on display in museums around the world. Notably, the Adoration of the Magi is one of his paintings you can see at the Uffizi Gallery in Florence. The Ginevra de Benci that we discussed earlier in the series is on public display at the National Gallery in Washington, D.C. And of course, there's the Mona Lisa at the Louvre in Paris. That's where you can also see one of the two paintings of da Vinci's Virgin of the Rocks. The other resides at the National Gallery in London, which is where we are headed now. Hello, I'm Caroline Campbell. I'm Director of Collections and Research at the National Gallery in London, and I'm responsible for the Leonardos and Michelangelos in the collection, as well as a whole heap of other great Italian Renaissance paintings. At the National Gallery, we have two great works by Leonardo. We have the Burlington House cartoon, which is a large drawing of the Virgin Mary, her mother, Anne, and the Christ child, and the infant St. John. And we have a great painting, The Virgin of the Rocks, by Leonardo as well. So this is it, the famous fresco. Everyone is talking, so I thought I'd come and see. When people come to the National Gallery, we know that one of the places they make a beeline for when we're open normally is Leonardo. And in fact, people are in the Leonardo room within about five minutes after the gallery's opened. If you stand in that space, you can see that it's a it's an area that people immediately make their way to. And what I see is people who are just absolutely blown away by the skill of this painter, but also of the subtlety of his effects, that he's not just painting or drawing in a naturalistic fashion. He's not showing you something that you know, but he's taking you from the world you know into something very magical, something which is enchanted, which doesn't seem quite of this world. But it's also incredibly skillful. If you've ever tried to paint or draw like Leonardo to do these effects of sfumato where you seem to blur outlines, you'd think it would be so simple. It's incredibly difficult. He was such a sophisticated thinker. I think that's the appeal, that he was somebody who didn't see his, his purpose as being primarily that of a painter or of an artist. I mean, he would have wanted to have been um, a designer of war instruments, of technology, of all sorts of stuff. And I think that's why people find his picture so interesting because it not only takes them into another world it takes them somewhere which isn't just a picture gallery it's the whole space of our imaginations and how we can go if we think in an untrammeled way you have a gift Leonardo 
And you know that. Please show it to the world again. And he didn't, hasn't always had an attraction in human history. In the 19th century, when the National Gallery bought the Virgin of the Rocks, the painting that's probably one of the most famous works in the gallery today, um, it was not thought to be such an incredible or great purchase. It was important, but not as significant as the work of another Italian painter of the same time, um, Raphael, who now is not as famous as Leonardo is. Who was that? Lots of artists at this time painted the same subjects. Leda and the Swan was, of course, a subject that Leonardo had made famous. And we know that Michelangelo painted uh, a picture of the same subject for another great patron, Alfonso d'Este, Duke of Ferrara. And the painting in the National Gallery is also a, a copy made after the original painting or the cartoon. Um, but patrons were fascinated by these mythological subjects. They were partly really interested in them because they were a way of expressing sexuality of deviance. I mean, it's an extraordinary tale that Jupiter in the form of a swan seduces Leda and then that she bore him children who pop out of an egg, which is what you see in Leonardo's version of the subject. From darkness light, from pain beauty. It's a beautiful idea. But at the same time, there were also ideas which tried to connect this to Christian thought, strange though it may seem to, to believe. But these were subjects that, although they may seem obscure to us today, were very much part of the world in which these artists and their patrons operated and worked. Um, they weren't strange or particularly unusual subjects. However, when um, the painting of Lida in the National Gallery after Michelangelo came into the collection in the mid-19th century, it was said that it it wasn't possible to be exhibited publicly because its subject was so indecent. And in fact, we can't find that it was ever displayed in public before 1915. He says it's all been confiscated. On whose authority? The Duke's. I think this type of art was, was generally not for a big public consumption. It wasn't a subject that would have been appropriate to have been displayed in a church or in a council hall. Um, and these paintings were normally made for very rich, very sophisticated male patrons, and they were kept in a small space, and they were shown only to those people who they wanted them to see them. So there was something very private um, about them. I just think that Leonardo has an incredible fascination. His original works excite people so much because they were made so long ago and yet they seem incredibly pertinent to lives today, even though they're so far removed from it. I mean, his personality, his life, um, the fact that the Mona Lisa is the most famous picture in the world, the fact that so many of his works are destroyed. Um, he still remains the, the greatest known artist in the world. Nobody, not even Banksy for all his fame, has surpassed Leonardo. Leonardo's legacy has been extraordinary, but it's almost more been, I think, as a model of what an artist could be and the different ways in which they could act rather than necessarily people copying his work. Because actually, Michelangelo and Raphael were greater models for artists um, in the Western world than Leonardo probably was because he didn't finish things, because he didn't complete them. But I think that's his legacy today, that it's all right to do 
that. You can produce extraordinary works. They don't necessarily need to be complete, but they're ones that continue to have a legacy and an impact on people 500 years after his death. A man should have a legacy. I think Leonardo really makes artists think that actually anything is possible and you've, you've got to be ambitious. And also that combination of art and science, which is so deeply fascinating, which his life is so imbued with, not just making art, but taking knowledge forward in new ways. Um, I think we often think of um, art and science and the natural world as being separate and they're completely together in the personality and life and achievements of Leonardo da Vinci. Only one endeavor combines these disciplines to make something magical. Only art. Caroline Campbell there from London's National Gallery. In a few minutes, we'll get some final thoughts about the legacy of Leonardo from some of those who worked on the drama. But right now, we need to focus in on the conclusion to the fictional murder mystery. One final spoiler warning in case you haven't seen exactly how episode eight of Leonardo ends. There's no way Leonardo is that boy's father. He could be Bernardo Bimbo's bastard. Or mine. A false heir. A bastard the French could use to make a claim against my throne. To steal it from us before we have a chance to retake it. But the French don't know he could be your son. Not yet. There's only one way to be sure they never do. The two characters at the heart of that fictional murder plot, Aidan Turner and Matilda DeAngelis, had their own discussion about the climax to their character's story, where we finally discover that to protect Catalina's son from Schwarzer, the Duke of Milan, Leonardo faked Catalina's death by poisoning her, only to dramatically bring her back to life with the skillful use of an antidote. How do you think the ending is gonna play out for audiences? What do you think they're gonna make of it? I don't know. I really don't know. I, I can tell you, when I read the script, I thought, no, this is too much. This is too much to make up, right? No, he's not a, he's not a killer. So possible, she lives, of course she lives. But I was thinking about it like in a rational way. Like, I, I don't remember Leonardo da Vinci killing someone. It's too much, it is not right. But in a way, I think people would react like, they want us to be together in the end. So I think in a way it's obvious that I'm gonna live and people would know that. But, uh, but it's beautiful that until the end, you don't know how it's possible he made it and why and how. And, and eventually she lives and it's, it's incredible because it's even, more, it's even more romantic in a way. Like I killed you to save your life. What? Only Leonardo Vinci could do that. Like what? <laughs> If you think I killed Katerina, then why have you spared my life? I said that you poisoned her. I didn't say that you killed her. What do you think about it? Yeah, that was a dangerous little game, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it could have went so wrong, right? Yeah. 
Um, I don't know. I'm really. It's. It's. I think it's so difficult to predict what an audience, how an audience will feel. I know when I read it, uh, I thought it was really clever. For my first reading, I thought uh, it, it's it's well thought out. It, it's. You're right. I mean, I don't know if there's a world where people will watch the show, will believe that he's a killer, but um, I don't know. They probably won't be sure of what sort of the tone of our show either. So I, that's what I kind of hope. I hope people are surprised. Yeah. And continuing to guess. I like the idea that they might think that he would kill for love. I mean, there's something honorable and noble in that, I suppose. So, but still there's a bit like, God, are you a murderer though? Are we, are we saying he's a murderer? And I don't know how comfortable as an audience member I'd be with that if I wasn't a part of the show. So it definitely complicates things, but that's good. I think those, those complications are, are interesting for an audience. Katrina's letter, where did you find it? I didn't. Seems that you have some imagination after all. Spend all that time with the great Leonardo da Vinci and not have a little of it rub off. It's also really clever because at the beginning of the show, we say most of Leonardo art's work are gone. And we, we, we know so little about them. And we pretend that these works are about Caterina da Cremona. So it's logic in the way you have to explain why these paintings are not being found, right? So, and you invent the love story around this, this camotage and it's beautiful, it's clever, it's, it's gripping. And of course you don't believe Leonardo is a killer, but you wonder how it's going to end and how, how he did it. Right, and, and there is the mystery surrounding also around that painting, because that painting has disappeared. I mean, I think there are two, um, versions around one of them was shown at the Louvre at the retrospective I think you know it's just said something like students of Verrocchio's studio or something and then there was somebody else who the name has escaped me now who had painted some years later almost identical they reckon to, to um, what some of Leonardo's sketches depict but that was Caterina in the sketches for Lady and the Swan though right so yeah. I mean it is a mystery you kind of go like where did the painting go and why is there not more sketches of her? And who was this woman? And why is she not showed up in any other of his paintings or in his sketches? Like why, why the secrecy, if there's any? Yeah. It just, it, it does invite questions. There are thousands of questions that need unraveling. To wrap up our story here, though, for this series, we put one final question to director Dan Percival, executive producer Freddie Highmore, and writer and Leonardo co-creator Frank Spotnitz. We asked, on reflection... What do you feel is the lasting impact that Leonardo the drama and Leonardo the artist has left on you now that the show is out in the world? And here's what they had to say, starting with Dan. I think if there's one thing I've gained from being involved in the making of Leonardo, it's this new perception of the world. It, it, sounds, it sounds a very grand statement to make, but... You know, being invited into the way Leonardo sees the world, sees the three-dimensionality of everything he looks at, his acute perception, and having to understand that and having to observe it and having to recreate it has helped me see the world more profoundly. The world is a never-ending source of wonder, Francesco. You can spend your entire life studying it and never come close to understanding it. It's funny, I'm, uh, I'm here in Vancouver filming and some people here have already seen the show and I know that this is 
very much stating the obvious, but it definitely struck me how amazingly international and global the appeal is for Leonardo da Vinci. And I think when filming any project, but particularly with this project, we all focused on telling this small, intimate, personal story. And we filmed in Italy in the middle of a pandemic. And then all of a sudden it comes out and you step out of it and you get to appreciate how this story fits into the wider portrait of the man. And if we're lucky, uh, of course, the show will, in a very small way, have contributed to the effect that Leonardo continues to have on so many. I've actually been thinking a lot about Leonardo since the series was broadcast. He really represents to me what Western civilization should be. He's kind of Western civilization at its best. Just this unbelievable devotion to truth and beauty. So to me, Leonardo really seems like a, a reminder of our better and best selves. Frank Spotnitz there closing out this final episode of Leonardo, the official podcast with me, Angelica Bell. Thank you so much for listening and learning about Leonardo with us. As Frank put it, Leonardo is a reminder of our better and best selves. And that feels like the perfect way to end. This podcast was created by Sony Pictures Television and Sony Music's Fourth Floor Creative in association with Lux Fide. Produced by Natalie Jameson and James Deacon. Edited by Chris Attaway. Sound mix by Mark Pittam. And production support from Barney Lee. Barney Lee.